the Freedom Chasers podcast, where we bring you stories, interviews, discussions, and successes of real life, real life real estate investors and agents who are pursuing a life of freedom and purpose. Today we have on Gary Davidson, a repeat guest of ours, who is a real estate attorney that specializes with hedge funds, investors that are doing billions of dollars of wholesaling, creative financing, and buying properties in ways that many of you might not think are even possible. Gary was gracious enough to grant us an additional episode of his time so that we could journey down this process and get deep into investing so that everyday people can realize that they can invest with either little or no money down. And this is coming from a seasoned veteran attorney who knows the backside of this. And so he can help give you insights into what you can do. And this is not coming from some fly-by-night person who is going to give you advice and it's not even legally viable. This is coming from somebody who has watched billions of dollars of transactions take place. So Gary, thank you for joining us. And we want to dive right in. And so if you wouldn't mind by starting and telling us some of the coolest transactions that you've seen take place on the creative side. Yeah, so thanks so much for having me, Matt. And I do, I do represent a lot of hedge funds and private equity groups and family offices. But, but really, what I enjoy doing is helping regular people, uh, just like us, uh, create that life worth living and legacy worth leaving. Because you know, the reality is, my dad was an assembly line worker and my mom was a secretary. So, you know, I don't uh, come from a Harvard educated background. I I went to a law school that I refer to as Harvard on the Highway, which is Northern Illinois University. So, you know, when it, when it comes to wholesaling, you know, we, most people are one trick ponies. And, and when it comes to real estate, most people are one trick ponies. They'll, they'll go to a, a particular guru seminar in Salt Lake City, Utah, or Denver, Colorado, or, or Chicago, Illinois. And they'll, they'll hear somebody speak on a specific, very, very specific thing. They'll hear the term trust and all of a sudden everything they're buying is in trust. But when we're doing uh, real estate transactions and when realtors see transactions, you have to look at it from a very much a 10,000 foot perspective. So generally speaking, when uh, someone uh, interviews a client, if they're a realtor or if they're an investor, they get a response from somebody saying they want to buy a house and that house might be worth a hundred thousand dollars and the person says i want a hundred thousand dollars for my house the person who's an investor if they don't know any better are going to say that's not a deal right why would you buy a house Mm -hmm. for a hundred thousand dollars that is worth a hundred thousand dollars i mean let's face it in in real estate we're looking for the inside edge we're looking for value. We're, we're looking to create equity. We're looking to do what I said right, right at the beginning. We're cr- looking to create that life worth living, that legacy worth leaving. How in the world are we going to be able to cr- do that with a house that's $100,000 that we're buying for $100,000? But guess what? We can. And, and here's how. You know, we have to have those tools in our tool belt. So let's just reverse engineer this and let's think about it a different way. If we went to that person and they said, you know what? My mother was is sick in Florida and I need to move by the end of this month and I need to rent down there and I can't afford my $1,200 payment on my uh, $100,000 house here in Illinois, let's call it in South Holland, Illinois. And yet I can say to them, look, I'll buy it for you. on I'll buy it from you on contract. I'm going to take over your mortgage payments. And we know that the market rate for rent is $1,800. Well, we can buy that property on contract for $100,000. We can service the debt at $1,200. And we can put in a tenant for $1,800. Now we have a $600 cash flowing asset with no money down. 
no money down, $600. We've solved someone's problem and we've created an asset that is cash flow. And guess what else? We can take that technique a step farther. We could actually sell it to that tenant for $150,000, $160,000. And we can have it on a balloon mortgage and we can sell that to them three, four, five years later. And guess what, guys? Over the last three years, what did we go through? We went through a global pandemic. We saw people losing their jobs. We saw people's credit score getting destroyed. We saw people who couldn't pay their mortgage. These people are not degenerates. They're back to work at the assembly line plant. They're back um, doing our plumbing. They're back doing the electric. These are This is the heart of America. These folks have good paying jobs, $150,000 a year. Mm. Yet over the last three years, their credit was destroyed. They couldn't make their mortgage payments. So they can't go to a traditional bank. They can't get financing. So there's a huge millions of people that are good people, hardworking people that have assets that can buy a house. Well, we can take those people and we can put them in a house. And right now they don't think they have a solution. They think they have to rent for three years. We can go to them and we can say, look, we know you can't buy now, but we know you can pay that $1,600 a month. And here's the beauty of it. Mm -hmm. After that three-year period, it's treated as a refinance. It's not a traditional purchase mm -hmm. because you finance that person and they're paying you a principal interest taxes and insurance payment. So, so now let's recap. We've solved the problem for party A. They've moved to Florida to help mm -hmm. their mother. We're covering their debt. We've solved a problem for party C because that person now who didn't think they could buy a house, who didn't think they could build equity is now able to buy a house. Guess what else? Interest is tax deductible. We've helped them because now they can write off that tax. Mm -hmm. We've helped ourselves because we have a cash flowing asset at $600 a month. 600 times 12 is what? 7200 bucks? No. So I don't know. I, I don't, I'm mm -hmm. not good at But it's, you know, we do yep. 10 or 15 right. of those yeah. and it's a pretty good yeah. thing. And, and so mm -hmm. these are some of the techniques that we use where for the most part, real estate agents, investors, real estate agents see this every single day. I have real estate agents that say, I'm so frustrated. This person wants to sell their house for more than it's worth. Well, guess what? If they come to me, I'm sort of like a person that takes a thing of clay and molds it. And we could come up with creative solutions to solve almost every problem. What That's, do you think of that, guys? I just love this. You know, like you, you but absolutely love it. To, to see that you're taking two people's problems, solving both of them and providing a way for you to make income in a situation where... Otherwise, these per people might just not get what they want. One person might be trapped away from their family in Florida, and one person might be stuck renting. So first of all, I think it's beautiful from a standpoint that you're making two people's lives better in the process. What I would love to do, if you're open to it, is I'd love to dive into the scenario as deep as we possibly can. So let's maybe do it in a way where we can unlock all of the questions and fears that people will have with doing this and maybe get in the particulars so that someone hopefully watching this, if they run in the situation, could actually take action on this and start doing this. So for example, I'd like to start breaking down the terms and how things are gonna work. So when you say sell it to them on contract, are you talking about that the seller stays on title or does a title transfer? Yeah, thanks, thanks Matt, because you know, we all in this industry oftentimes will start to throw out terms and uh, we realize that people don't mm -hmm. always know them. So what I'm referring to when I say sell on contract totally. is if someone wants to Google these words, these all of these things are interchangeable. Owner financing, land sale mm -hmm. contract, 
contract for deed, articles of agreement for deed. All of those words mean exactly the same thing. And here's what those words mean. What they mean is that instead of the Bank of America financing the purchase of the property, it's going to be the Bank of Matt Cavanaugh. So the title does not transfer to the end buyer. The title stays in Matt Cavanaugh's name and they make a principal interest taxes and insurance payment to Matt. And then at a particular time when they have paid it all off, it's at that point they receive the deed to the property. What I like to tell people is this is the same thing as buying a car. Mm -hmm. Because when we buy a house, we go, we buy a house and they give us a deed, even though we haven't paid for the entire house, we get a deed from the seller. When we go to buy a car and we finance a vehicle, they keep the title to the vehicle. You don't get the title to the vehicle until such after, until you've paid off that vehicle. So a articles of agreement for deed, land sale contract, contract for deed, seller financing, all of those words mean exactly the same thing is a person who is acting as the bank and it's selling it to someone else. And the reason that then at the end we can refinance that property is because we have received a principal interest taxes and insurance payment. So again, we've become Bank of America. So when U.S. Bank comes along to refinance it, they say, oh, okay, I see Matt Cavanaugh was the bank. Matt Cavanaugh is paying this, uh, Matt Cavanaugh is selling this property to this person with a principal interest taxes and insurance payment. We're now going to refinance that property out and we're going to pay Matt the money that he's owed for lending the money to them to buy the property. And now we become the bank. And at that point, it's a traditional refinance where we record a deed. And the beauty of that refinance as opposed to a traditional purchase and sale is, as many people may know, banks are a lot more small L liberal in um, providing loans for refinances. The terms are much more Mm -hmm. aggressive. The costs are much, much less. So this allows that end buyer that contract purchaser to be able to buy that property outright much, much more quickly and much, uh, much uh, in a much more economically advantageous fashion. Totally. Because they've demonstrated two or three years of proof of ability. And that's, I think the hard thing about the way the lending environment is set up is essentially it's mostly based on credit score and income so on and so forth, which obviously can be good indicators. But for the people that don't have those elements that are still really good people that that do what they say, they don't really have a shot on the purchase side. But obviously for a bank that says, oh, hey, this person's credit score might not be perfect, but look, they've been making this payment without fail for three years. They're now clearly a different risk category than than they would have appeared to be. Absolutely. Yeah, that's awesome. And, and you, you mentioned, Matt, that, um, you know, people are always scared of what they don't understand. And all of these terminology, all this, all these terms that we're using, um, you know, I see the biggest mistake that uh, real estate investors and real estate agents make is that they do a quick Google search and they pick some sort of a contract off the internet and then they start trying to execute on things. And um, Hmm. all of these techniques are easy once you've figured them out, but it's extremely sophisticated. And there is no such Hmm. thing. The one thing that's like nails on a chalkboard to me is people say, hey, can I have a form contract? 
this stuff is not one size fits all. Um, this is a very, very, these are very, very sophisticated techniques. Um, it's not yeah. niche. Every, you know, everybody in the world is doing this. Um, but you have mm. to know, I think on the last episode, I talked about um, a pharmacist. And I think, Matt, you mentioned that uh, your mom or someone is, mm -hmm. a, is a pharmacist. And mm -hmm. I mean, when it comes to creative yeah. financing, and when it comes to um, investment real estate, I mean, the pharmacy analogy can't be more spot on because you have to be able to go and pick the exactly correct bottle. Because if you don't pick the correct bottle with the right pills on it and you try to apply, you know, uh, this topical medication as opposed to that topical medication, you know, you're going to end up with a rash, right? Um, so when it comes totally. to wholesaling, it's extremely important to seek out in your specific area. So if you're in California, if you're in New York, if you're in Delaware, if you're in Illinois, every single state is different. The stuff that's being put up on the internet, if, if it's not specific to that state, you're going to screw it up. In Illinois, we have what's called uh, the Illinois Real Estate Brokers Act, and they amended the Illinois State Real Estate Brokers Act three years ago. And it is uh, prohibited for you to solicit or offer anything for sale that has to do with real estate if you don't have a real estate broker's license. So, uh, again, people confuse um, this, and I'm getting into wholesaling a little bit here, Matt, but I mean, when it comes to the Real Estate Brokers License Act, uh, people say, hey, you can wholesale one property a year. You go on the internet, everybody's, everybody's like, yeah, in Illinois, you can wholesale one property a year without a license. What the act actually says is every single act constitutes a separate incident. So each Facebook post is a individual act. So if you offer a property wow. on five different Facebook sites, four of those are a violation of the Real Estate Brokerage Act, $10,000 fine apiece without a broker's license. Whoa. <laughs> yeah, that can be pretty steep pretty fast. Um, yeah, so I, I, th I think that's a big takeaway right away. So essentially, if you want to do this, get in contact with the local attorney who knows this stuff. Obviously, for people in your area, you are the guy. You're the guy that everybody recommends. But if you live in California or New York or wherever, find a local attorney there and make sure you understand the laws. So diving into this a little bit deeper... Obviously, there's a lot of people out there that are really interested in real estate. They don't have a lot of money, which is why they gravitate towards creative financing solutions. What do you say to somebody who maybe doesn't have enough money to build out the full legal process ahead of time? Should they just wait and save? Should they partner with somebody who has the money or, you know, what, what should they do? So, um, one of the things that just jumps out at me, and this is not a solicitation at all, but um, I represent a company called New Western Acquisitions. New West Western mm. Acquisitions is the largest wholesaler in the United States. They're the one that buy $2.3 billion. They're in 60 markets. Um, if someone's starting out, um, you know, and, and they have the drive, because this stuff is not easy. This is not the silver bullet. You have to put in the time and effort. But if somebody has the willingness to grind and put in the time and effort, you know, there are plenty of uh, mid-level and larger level uh, people who are wholesaling in the real estate industry where you can join their team and you can become part of their team and learn that process and make money in the interim. You can do it on your own for sure. Um, you know, in people in Illinois, um, we have all of the contracts uh, that people need with written instructions that tell them exactly how to use each exact contract. You know, we charge $300 for that full packet, not because I 
want to make $300 on the package. Um, I charge it simply because uh, I want people to make some sort of investment in themselves. And then what we do on our level is we tell them, hey, mm. on your first closing, we're going to give you a $300 credit. Um, so that way I'm just not giving something away mm. and, and they're actually, they actually have some Love skin it. in the game. Um, so, so we, we give it away for free, but, but in order to, uh, in order for mm. them to uh, get it for free, they have to achieve a success, right? So they have to pay me the $300 and then they have to go Love out it. and get a deal. And once yeah, they get the deal, awesome. I give them the $300. So, so, so you could do it on your own. Um, it doesn't take much because, again, we'll provide them with all of that information here in Illinois for them to go out and bird dog properties, knock on doors, send yellow letters, put up um, signs. Um, or, you know, my recommendation is they can join with a, a brokerage um, in Illinois that does this sort of thing, like a new Western acquisitions that does $2.3 billion a year. Um, that's doing in all their major markets, a hundred transactions a month. You know, I got to tell you guys, I was at, on this yacht thing last night. Um, I was mentioning to you in Chicago and I was with Richard Randall who runs new Western here in, in, in Chicago. They just opened up. I was amazed. These, these guys, he was telling me these, there's kids there that are 22, 23, 24 years old. They're making five, six, $700,000 working at new, new Western wholesaling properties. So it's super cool if you put in the effort. Love it. Incredible. Yeah. Well, and you're solving how many people's problems along the way, which is just tremendous. Okay. So this is really good advice. So essentially getting started one, if you've got the money, pay an attorney locally to set you up on all the processes and have a little bit of money ready for each transaction to make sure you get each transaction right. And go in with an open mind that every situation is different and you just got to, you know, find the sweet spot for that situation. But I do want to carry on with this specific transaction. So somebody at least has a specific tool that they can deploy. And so essentially mm -hmm. they come in, you find out that they want to sell you the property for what it's worth. The mortgage is low enough to where you can have some spread. And then the intention is you're going to take this down and then you're going to essentially turn around and sell it to another buyer at a much higher price. Quick question, I guess, how would they essentially have the authority to sell it if the current seller still is holding the title? Sure. So we're going to use that owner financing or that land sale contract twice. So we're buying it. Mm on contract and then we're turning mm -hmm. around and selling it on contract. And once we've bought it on contract, we have an equitable ownership and then we're able to sell it on contract. And then when they pay us off, we pay off our seller and it flows through with the deed getting recorded to party C. So we're going to use a land sale right. contract two times, buying it on contract, selling it on contract, both in the same transaction. Everyone who listens to our show knows Tim and I are passionate about obtaining financial freedom through real estate investing. We also know that everyone's situations and goals are different. And while there are programs out there that show you a path to financial freedom, many of these programs are just too cookie cutter and don't take your personality, situation, and desired outcome into account. Think about the number of times that you've watched a guru online and tried to do the exact same thing as they did, but had nowhere near the same results. You are not alone. When I got started, I was continually paying for courses and getting only partial results until I discovered the path that made sense for me. The results prove this out. Most online course creators have let us in on their dirty secrets that 90 to 95% of their students never complete their course and achieve their desired outcome. This is not something that we're okay with. The benefit of working with Tim and I is that we are interviewing between five and 20 people every single week. We have accumulated hundreds of seven-figure strategies and gotten inside scoop from these successful entrepreneurs. 
We're able to work with you to pick the strategy that will best fit and then help you create the custom plan to take you quickly into financial freedom. As a former math teacher, I always taught my students that the fastest way between two points is a straight line. If you want to get rid of the many curves in the road that can make the journey longer and more costly, then go to coaching.freedomchaserspodcast.com and book a call with us. And let's get you on a straight line path to freedom. Perfect. So we're not actually, again, we're not delivering title to them. We're just selling them the equitable interest that we obtained from the seller. Correct. And what we're going to want to do on this, what? Matt, is um, it's going to look it's going to look like a traditional real estate closing, meaning that uh, we actually will close at a title company. People will show up. They'll sign documents. They'll sign a bill of sale. They'll sign a deed. They'll sign an affidavit of title. There'll be a title commitment issued and a title policy issued. The difference is the title company escrows all of those documents rather than recording those documents. So what I mean by the term escrow Mm. is the title companies are going to hold all those documents. So they sign everything and they put them in a file. They put them you know, they, they put them away in a file and they hold them. They're a third party intermediary because what we don't want to have happen is three years down the line, we don't have to be running around trying to find people to sign documents. So we sign everything, gets gets placed with the title company, and the title company then issues people a policy because as as you guys know, I know you've been in the real estate industry a while. You know, if you go to somebody and they say, hey, I have a $100,000 mortgage and, you know, I'm up to date on my taxes and I don't have any liens and I don't have child support obligations and Bank of America didn't sue me and get a judgment for $10,000 on a credit card, we can't take their word for it, right? So we have to utilize a title examination from a title company. There's plenty, there's hundreds of title companies in the world. You have to call a title company. In Illinois, we attorneys do that, and we do the title examination. And then then we look at everything, and we make sure that what people tell us and what reality is actually matches up. Because oftentimes someone will say, I owe $100,000, and maybe they only owe $95,000, or maybe they owe $110,000. People don't realize that a line of credit is actually a mortgage. They took out a line of credit for 20000 Well, that's an encumbrance on title. They didn't realize that when they were 18 years old and they run it, ran up their Discover card and uh, they charged $6,000 on it, that someday the chickens are going to come home to roost and Discover went to court and they got a judgment <laughs> and they reported it and now it's a, a lien on your property. So that's something that people not necessarily are lying. They simply don't know. So we have to run that whole process through the title company. And that protects everybody. It protects you. It protects the seller. Certainly protects the end buyer C. And oh, by the way, just taking a step back. On that transaction, the B to C transaction, (coughs) meaning the selling it to the person who may have lost their job, who can't qualify for a house right now, we on a contract for deed, we can get a large down payment. We want to try to get a large down payment. So this person who may have lost their job, maybe they're maybe they um, operate in a lot of uh, a cash business. They're a contractor, so it's not sourceable funds if they were to go to traditional mortgage bank. But they could give us twenty thousand dollars down. Guess what? You know. On our A to B transaction, we're going to put a thousand dollars down. On our B to C transaction, we're going to get a twenty or thirty thousand dollar down payment. Guess what, Matt? There's your seed money to buy your next house because that money's non-refundable. Yeah. And then essentially, if everybody defaults, the seller still already holds the title, and that just reverts. Nope. You know, then we would just lose our interest. Uh, no harm, no foul. Uh, we just uh, wash the wash the chalkboard. Yeah. Um, 
which of course is a term that you guys don't realize because you're younger than me, but uh, you probably, you had dry mm-hmm. erase boards in school. We had chalkboards, um, but we, we wash that chalkboard and uh, we, we start over and the seller is no worse for the wear. They're put back in the exact same position that they were before we came to them. Yeah. With more of their mortgage paid off. And I, I think there's some really amazing things about this that you're describing, which is essentially because the title stays in their name, then it doesn't violate the due on sale clause. Is that is that accurate? That's true. Yeah, that is very true. It does not violate the due on sale clause. Um, you know, there's obviously other techniques where <coughs> we uh, can sell a property subject to the existing mortgage and the deed would transfer over. Um but uh, in a contract mm-hmm. for deed scenario, which I prefer to use uh, most often, uh, that does not violate the due on sale clause. So um, I threw out another term. So let's just take a quick snapshot of that, which is buying a, pri- pro- mm-hmm. um, a property subject to. Do you want to talk about subject to for a second or do you want to stay on this Definitely other time? Um, can, I dive a, can I dive a little bit deeper? So yeah, go ahead. you had mentioned... Um, you had mentioned that we escrow the documents instead of record them. So mm-hmm. recording, my understanding of recording is essentially it provides the constructive notice to people that, Hey, this, this transaction is happening. And so I'd love to know the benefits of not recording in this case. And maybe, I mean, are there downsides? Like if, if there's no recorded documents that these, you know, A to B, B to C transactions are taking place, like what would stop somebody from the, the original seller from selling somebody else and people not knowing what we've done has taken place? Okay. So um, beautiful question. And it's something I missed. So thank you very much. So we don't record anything except on mm-hmm. contract for deeds. We always record a memorandum of the contract. So at the contract for deed closing, a document gets recorded that says that Matt is selling this property to Gary and Gary claims an interest in this property such that when Matt tries to sell it to someone else, tries to go get a mortgage, tries to do anything to encumber that property, the person who is lending Matt that money, the person who's buying that property from Matt will not do it. And if Matt just tries to quit claim the property and conveys it over to Tim and you don't do it through a title company and Tim just pays Matt uh, $100,000 for this property. Tim has now bought that property subject to my interest because I've placed mm-hmm. a document of public record on notice saying, I, Gary, have an interest in the property from Matt. So uh, we do record one thing, and that is a memorandum of mm-hmm. that contract. That memorandum of contract protects party A, party B and party C from any third party coming in and compl- uh, and claiming a superior interest to the property because recording puts all future lien holders, mortgagors on notice that my interest is superior to someone who comes along later. Beautiful. Yeah. And that's, and so the due on sale is avoided because the title's not transferred. There's recorded notice, but you're not putting, you're not airing out all the details and you immediately get to take this property in such a way where you can make money on it and solve everybody's problems. Can we dive in a little bit to the, how the money is made for the investor? Like as far as Obviously, there's the spread of the down payment, but will you kind of go into the ways that the investor makes out in this deal? Absolutely. So again, um, we need to ascertain the total principal interest taxes and insurance payment for the original seller. 
And again, under my example, I think I said a thousand dollars or something. And we need to be able to be certain that we have a person that can pay rent. It's not really rent, but that can pay rent of some additional money beyond that. So that's our monthly cash flow. The second way we're going to make money is that when we go to sell that property on contract to party C, which is the person who lost their job during COVID, had some major medical expense, but otherwise has a good W-2 job or has the ability to make payments, we're going to receive a substantial, as much as we can, right? This is a negotiation. Maybe rule of thumb is 10%, 10% down. If we can get 20, if we can get 50%, if we can get 80%, let's get it. But, you know, mm. we want to try to get around that 10% down. So we're going to have that chunk of money. And then we're going to sell that property on the back end for more than we're buying it for on the front end. So we're going to buy it for 100 mm. and we're going to sell it three or four years from now for $150,000 and we're going to make that spread. So we're going to cash flow on a monthly basis. <clears throat> we're going to get our initial downstroke of money at the initial closing. And on the back side, we're also going to um, basically make money like a traditional flip, right? It's going to be a traditional flip. It'll almost be like a double close, but it's a pre prolongated double close over the course of several years. So it's sort of a, a hybrid between um, buy and hold. So we get the benefits of buy and hold with the month, monthly cash flow. Um, we also get the benefits of a flip because we're going to get that, that initial, you know, pop uh, and then a backside pop when we, uh, when we sell it off to that person. And um, you know, <laughs> the other value in the back in, in this is that, um, we don't have to, you know, we have our, we have our buyer captivated. So, um, <clears throat> for those who are realtors, you're not going to have to pay a cooperative com commission because you've already got your, your buyer on the backside. For those of your investors, you know, you may avoid commissions altogether because you, uh, you've already got your buyer on your backside. So, um, everyone has buyer lists <clears throat> and our buyer lists in, in the investor world, um, means that we're trying to trying to find cash investors who can buy now, who are qualified, who have good um, good financing with a local community bank or a Finance of America or a large large institutional hard money lender. Um, but very few people create a buyer's list of regular folk, and there's millions of these people in America untapped, untapped. What I'm doing is I'm giving somebody the ability to have inside edge in real estate investing in a field where there is, I mean, I could take a, a pitching wedge and hit a hundred investors from my house. Everybody wants to be a real estate investor. What I'm describing right now is something that gives mm. people the inside edge. People are not doing this. And there's tens of millions of people in the United States that can qualify for these loans. So creating a buyer's list of people who actually want to buy homes, who are good people. They're not investors, right? These are people that actually want to buy a regular home that just can't qualify. Guess what? Think about this as far as real estate agents go, right? How many, how many times do we have buyers that come to us that want to buy a house that can't get a loan for a BMX bicycle? And again, it, it just maddens me that um, because we're all set up to be one trick ponies, we throw all these things away. Mm -hmm. Guess what? Now, all of a sudden, these people who have jobs whose credit score is low, that can't quite, quite qualify, we can find them homes and we can sell them to them. Uh, because, again, using this technique, mm -hmm. they, are not, they don't need to qualify today. We just need to make sure that they can qualify a year from now, two years from now, three years from now, get them set up with a credit repair company if that's what we need to do. So it's a super awesome thing. So Gary, what is the solution if 
the B to C transaction, if the C renter or better term would be mortgagor, I suppose, or mortgagee, excuse me, um, doesn't pay, do you just advise to transfer title back to the original seller or are there other solutions for, um, you know, the wholesaler? Yes. Yeah, so, Tim, um, this goes to having our uh, bench built, right? So if we have a, a good buyer's list of folks that qualify, no problem. Actually, I mean, we don't want to oh, be predatory right. because I actually want to approach everything from always adding value. But if that person paid us 10% and they default, God bless America. We'll just put another person in there that's going to pay us another 10%. And we just take them out. Okay, fine. You can't, you can't, uh, you can't, you can't, uh, you can't pay. We'll put another contract purchaser right, right in there, and and we'll get ten percent down from them, and we we start over. Now, obviously, Tim, if we run into a problem um, where we're not able to um, uh, find another buyer, maybe you know, I'm talking all rainbows and unicorns here yeah you know so i'm talking about you know a market that you could actually sell that property for 150,000 three years or four years from now what happens if um uh you know what i predict and what my really good friend who's the number one reo agent in illinois ryan smith predict predicts is we're going to have a potentially um decent sized correction in this market and uh, because interest rates are going up and inflation, we actually have a correction where prices go down. Well, then all of a sudden, my scenario where I'm talking rainbows and unicorns and say, "Hey, this is going to sell for 150,000," that person can't get a loan because they can't. The thing doesn't appraise. We can unravel the transaction. Um, but again, party A just gets placed back in the same position that they were. It's just now three years fast forwarded. We solved that problem for them for a three-year period, and they've had their mortgage paid down for those three years. So we're going to hand the problem back to them. They had a problem to begin with. But before we do that, yeah. we have a bunch of different options to get other people in there. Okay. That makes so a ton of sense. Um, just for a little bit more clarity, say the C person is not paying, would that be an eviction process or would that be a foreclosure process? to get them out? Awesome question. Now, again, um, we're going to talk from the context of the land of Lincoln here, the state of Illinois. So in Illinois, mm -hmm. uh, it is a um, little bit more than an eviction and a lot less than a foreclosure. What do I mean by that? Okay. In Illinois, if you don't pay rent, it's a five-day notice. In um, Illinois, if you don't pay on contract, it's a 30-day notice. So after five days of non-payment of rent, you can file an eviction. Illinois, it's a 30-day notice. Then you can file that eviction slash foreclosure proceeding. And once you go to court, depending upon how much money the contract purchaser is put down. I think if it's like more than 40% um, and, and check with your lawyer or call my office because I have a whole division of attorneys in my office that do the evictions and contract for deeds. Um, so um, for those listening, Castle Law, um, www.castlelaw.com, 815-744-6550. Um, for those um, who have paid X amount there's a right of redemption. So the judge stays possession for, you know, two or three months because a person has put sufficient equity in there that they don't want people to rob equity if they, uh, if they've, you know, had one month where they can't pay. So you could keep an eye on that equity to keep it, you know, maybe below that threshold um, so that you don't have to have that right of redemption. Um, so to answer your question, Tim, it's not nearly as onerous as a foreclosure, but it's a, a, a tad bit more uh, difficult than 
on eviction in terms of the length of time. Um, and then just as a real side note, because I know a lot of people get very interested in this, and our office does more evictions in the state of Illinois than any other law firm. Uh, we're in court every day with a few lawyers. Uh, I used to do them all the time. I don't fit my suits anymore because I got too fat during COVID. Uh, but um, the uh, um, I'm working on that. Um, but um, the eviction time is actually coming down tremendously. Um, Cook County, uh, which is where Chicago is, still going to be a little tougher. You know, when we get out in the suburbs where people have, um, you know, a little bit more uh, values of, you know, congratulations, you didn't pay. Um, you can read and understand the English language. Um, you know, you didn't pay, you're out. That's kind of how the suburbs work in Chicago. It's like, well, you know, society failed you. You know, we want to give you an additional 90 days. I don't want to get in politics, but um, the reality is we know Cook County is going to take a little bit longer, but it's, those time frames are coming down. So we're able to get people through that process pretty quickly. Cool. I'd like to dive into time frame. So when you're the A to B transaction, is that time frame on the on that thing for the life of that that mortgage to be paid off? Like, or is, is it a permanent life? Like, what's the lifetime of that contract? Um, the the answer is um, it can be anything. So. We could make that mm -hmm. a one-year balloon. We could make it a three-year balloon. We could make it a lifetime of the loan. We can um, we can play around with our interest rates. Um, we we use an amortization schedule, so you know you can you can if you know your monthly payment, you can play around with the free amortization schedules online to, to determine what you want your monthly payment to be. But in terms of the time frame, there's no specific litmus test. Um, you sort of want to um, give yourself on the A to B transaction more time. And then generally speaking on the B to C transaction, we want to have that balloon in, you know, usually we're going to use anywhere from a two to five year balloon. What I mean by the term balloon is that at the expiration of that five-year period, the entire balance comes due, which means that the uh, buyer has to go and refinance that property. You can always extend it if you want, but generally speaking, on the A to B, we're going to use maybe a little bit longer term, maybe a five to seven-year term. And then on the B to C transaction, we want to use like a three to five-year term. But it really depends because again, Beautiful. The biggest thing that realtors, investors make mistakes on is, you know, they sit here and they listen to this awesome Freedom Chasers podcast and they're and they say, Gary said three years you know, or Gary said three to five years. So then all of a sudden it's like, OK, that's what I need to do. No, that's not what I'm saying. I mean, if the thing's cash flowing two thousand dollars a month, then make it 30 years. You know, that might make sense for you. And, you know, yeah. sometimes it has to do with talking to your CPA. I mean, does it make more sense that you have cash flow? Do you want to defer that big gain? I mean, we may not want to get $100,000 today because that $100,000 is, is, is taxable. I own a big, big, huge law firm. So, you know, I'm taxed out of the wazoo. I'm at the highest tax bracket. So, you know, I don't need... Personally, I'm lucky. I'm not bragging. I'm just saying I'm lucky. I don't need that money today. I want to defer that money to mm -hmm. down the road when hopefully somebody gets a handle on the um, situation in this country and lowers taxes, or at least I'm at a lower tax bracket. Hmm. Totally. Yeah. A couple more points I want to dive into. So, you're putting, say, a thousand dollar down payment to, to for the A to B transaction. You're turning around and getting ten percent, so a ten thousand dollar down payment from you know the B to C transaction. Probably sensible if our we have new investors listening 
that they keep that $10,000 as a reserve for the payments they might have to pay when the C transaction starts failing. If it starts failing, maybe if the C transaction does a little bit of damage, they have some money to fix it up. I mean, probably, you know, I think worth pointing out that, hey, that $10,000, like probably not a good idea to go spend it on a car or something like that, but to keep it in reserve till it's pretty clear the C transaction is going to perform. Um, another question I have is, is there ever any issues, like let's say you, you sell the B2C transaction and that's all going well, but then the A transaction claims that there was predatory behavior and doesn't want the transfer, the title to transfer once all the terms have been met. Has there been any issues with sellers fighting that? And if so, have they had any success or is it pretty ironclad? Um, uh, so this is a commercial transaction. So when we write the contract, we um, indicate on there that it's a commercial, uh, a commercial transaction. Um, so it's not governed by RESPA. It's not governed by um, your your um, your typical um, purchaser um, rights. Um, that would be a typical foreclosure process, et cetera, et cetera. So so I. Certainly, when people get into bad situations or they hear things from other people, we live in a victim society, and so people are going to blame people. I personally, Matt, have not run into that situation. Um, hmm. We have found and experienced in the hundreds and hundreds of these that we've done that people are extremely grateful, extremely happy because they've had a problem mm. solved for them that they couldn't solve. Because when they, when they sell that $100,000 property to you for $100,000, most times they've already exhausted meeting with six realtors, talking to their bank. They've already exhausted almost every other resource. So you have become their last stop. Um, but I, I want to mention what you said about holding reserves for a second, um, because again, this is extremely important, and and I think that um, our industry, um, real estate professionals, attorneys, investors, um, we have a massive responsibility, and um, investors tend to um, be a little bit cavalier. And we're really messing with someone's life. We're really mm -hmm. the last stop from someone going down a path of bankruptcy or getting their problem completely solved. And I see too many times where investors place offers on properties where it's two weeks away from a sheriff's sale. It's two weeks away from it going to um, tax deed. Maybe it's a short sale. And if this short sale doesn't go through, they're going to lose everything. And the, and the investor has literally no strategy on the backside. They don't have any end buyer. And people have to realize what they're doing. So as it relates to holding reserves, absolutely. Because again, I've painted this, you know, rainbow, rainbow and unicorn uh, position, but still because you're the equitable owner of that property, you know, if if the property, if the sump pump fails, if the if the HVAC goes out, um, you know, if there's a, a tree that falls through the roof, we got to think about insurance and how who's going to have the insurance. And I mean, there's a lot of different things that we have to be aware of, and we have to have that reserve because again. Not everybody does what they say they're going to do. So if the C party defaults, as you mentioned, we still have an obligation over here to pay that $1,000 payment a month. And what did I just say? It can take three, four, five months to get through that court system. Well, at five months equals $5,000. So if you've taken that $10,000 and went out and blown it on a car, and you don't have any money, um, I think the legal term is you have completely 
the A to B person. Um, so I think that's the legal term of art, right? Um, so you've really put them in a terrible spot. Totally. One more ethical question I want to ask and, and just get your take on how you see it. So you're taking a property that's relatively speaking worth $100,000 and you're selling it to somebody for one hundred and fifty. And so you're doing a favor for them in the sense that you're giving an opportunity to buy a house they would never have. But some might argue that that's predatory in the sense that, yes, you're selling them a home, but you're selling them a home at $50,000 above market value. Can you kind of walk me through the benefits they get and why it even, it may seem predatory, but it, but it's not. Yeah, absolutely. Um, uh, to me, it's not predatory at all because this is like trading futures in the stock market, right? Um, we've got a lot of risk too, mm -hmm. because we're selling a property, $150,000 at the end of the day, they're protected by their appraisal. Um, if they can't, if that property doesn't appraise, mm -hmm. they can't buy that property. So it's predicting a future value of that mm -hmm. property, um, based on, uh, market, um, increases and in, in values. The second thing is this is no different than if I were to go to the bank and get 3% interest and Johnny Appleseed goes to the bank and gets 6% interest. Is it predatory because Johnny Appleseed has a 500 credit score and I have a 750 credit score? Or is it or is it a benefit to Johnny Appleseed because they're even willing to give Johnny Appleseed a loan that he otherwise couldn't get? So what we're talking about is a person who um, can't qualify for a traditional bank loan, right? Generally speaking of no fault of their own, so we're giving them an opportunity that they otherwise wouldn't have. But because of that, they're going to pay more. I mean, look at rent-a-centers. You and I can go and we could buy a refrigerator for $1,000. You go to a rent-a-center and that refrigerator at the end of the day is going to cost you $5,000. But if rent-a-centers didn't exist, then that person wouldn't even have a refrigerator. <laughs> so. Um, uh, the, the bottom line is um, not predatory at all. It's a commercial transaction. Um, they're protected by um, the, the values of the market as it is. They're going to be either be able to buy that property or not. And the risk that they run is going to be their down payment. So it's not as though they're mm -hmm. going to get $150,000 stolen from them. They're going to get that $10,000 right. um, um uh, forfeited if they can't perform on the contract. Yeah. And just to illustrate what you're saying. So essentially uh, somebody who right now in today's market maybe goes out and gets a five or 6% interest. If anybody will lend to this buyer, which they may not, but if anybody would, they'd probably be lending at 10 to 12, 15%. And so the difference of five or 6% and say 12%, let's say, a, let's say a 6% difference. If you take 6% on $100,000 over 30 years and you average that out, it's, it's probably going to average to like $100,000, give or take, in extra interest payments. And so by selling them at 150, if they carry a full 30-year term, you're possibly saving them 50 grand. Am I, am I thinking about that There's correctly? Also the, you're thinking about that correctly. And the other component is that all the interest that they're paying because they're buying it on contract is tax deductible because they're actually a contract mm. purchaser. So if they talk to their accountant, a lot of that interest is tax deductible. So the alternative is they're paying rent and that's just burning money away because again, they're making a principal interest taxes and insurance payment to us. So for, you know, for the rest of us that own homes, we report our interest payments on our tax returns. So now they get to report that, that interest as a deduction. Um, so, um, mm. you know, that's a far better scenario than, you know, we talk about best alternatives to a negotiated agreement. I mean, the art of negotiation is best alternative to a negotiated agreement. Their best alternative is that they're lighting their money on fire by paying rent. Yeah. Incredible. Well, Gary, I can't thank you enough for coming on. Um, I hope we get to have you on a hundred times, you know, to discuss all of the tools that you have mastered and helped investors deliver 
to their to their prospects and the sellers. Um, if any of you listening, please, if you do nothing else, take one action from today, like actually doing this thing, contact an attorney, get on a team, do something to start doing this where you can build some freedom for yourself. I mean, literally, there's only a handful of properties that you would probably need to buy to go from no passive income to being able to retire passive income wise. So please take an action, tell somebody about this so they can hold you accountable because freedom is not as far away as you think. Thank you for tuning in and we'll catch you on the next episode. Please like, comment, share, and subscribe. Engagement is like gold to us. We can't do what we're doing without it. Reviews and subscriptions, particularly on Apple, Spotify, and YouTube, are worth more than money. So please do what you can to support the show. 